Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And thank you for joining us once again, guys. It's lovely to have you back. Uh, thank you to our most recent Patreon supporters. We have Claire Haig, Helen Ritchie, Nanu Wollstonehome, Jackie, and also a huge thanks to Vicky London, a longtime friend of the show who has recently increased her pledge. Thank you, Vicky. If you want to join these guys and gain access to loads of exclusive Seeing Red content, then just head over to uh, patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Thank you so much, everybody. Really means the world. So thank you a lot. This week, we head back to our capital city via Brazil as we delve into the disturbing world of happy slapping for a case that was recommended to us by one of our patrons, Lauren. So thank you very much, Lauren. Oh, this is really interesting because happy slapping is something that I just haven't even thought of or heard of for so long. Well, I was I was going to say at this point, what is your understanding of happy slapping, Bethan? So my understanding of it is um, you'd run up to just a random person, like a stranger in the street. Maybe you'd know them, but generally you wouldn't. And it was usually teenagers or young people. Smack them across the face, probably filming it because it was the start of like smartphones and stuff. I can't really remember when this was, but I know that I was a bit too old for it. So I just thought, oh, teenagers being dicks. (laughs) But um, you'd kind of just slap someone across the face. So it wasn't like too horrendous as in you're not completely beating somebody up but equally it was still like in effect an assault and quite a shock and actually it would have hurt as well um and that that's kind of my understanding of it I didn't I don't know how it's going to fit into um true crime because my understanding of it was not harmless whatsoever but they would have seen it as harmless fun bit of silliness a bit like the women with the smearing Vaseline onto people's yeah. faces. A bit like that. Really annoying at the time. Kind of that was it. So yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. How yeah. good is my understanding of happy slapping then? I, I think that's a, a really good base understanding. And I think that's how happy slapping started out. But according to Wikipedia, so um, obviously this must be true. Happy slapping was a fad originating in the United Kingdom around 2005, in which one or more people attack a victim for the purpose of recording the assault, commonly with a camera phone or a smartphone, as you suggested. So um, so they very much refer to it as an assault, essentially, or an attack. Uh, so yeah, I think it probably did start out with more innocent origins of just embarrassing somebody in public and filming it, and maybe then uploading it to the internet or sharing it with friends but it did take on a kind of definition of its own um, a bit later on wow I can't like that's crazy because I really did think and I'm not saying it's okay to just slap someone across the face but I really did think that that's all it it would be would be slap run done mad that is absolutely but then like anything of course it's going to escalate you can't have yeah a slightly violent activity without it turning into pure violence Yeah. Um, And I I kind of take exception to the use of the word fad in that Wikipedia definition. But I suppose based on your initial understanding of happy slapping, I kind of get it because it probably was this kind of craze in the early noughties and then it just escalated from there on. So that kind of makes sense. So you may have noticed the Wikipedia definition refers to the term using the past tense. And actually, I think that probably is correct because you said you'd not really heard of it for a long time and it kind of died out 
And I'm not saying that happy slapping doesn't still happen, but back in the noughties with the rise of camera phones, YouTube and social media, this deterioration in social behaviour was seen as a symptom of the digital age and the media leapt on it. They leapt on that term of happy slapping and in 2021, I would say it's just part and parcel of everyday life. If something's going down, a fight, an altercation, whatever, it's usually filmed by someone and then uploaded to the internet. And that's normal now, but 15, 20 years ago, that wasn't normal. I think that's such a good point. Like, I think nowadays as well, potentially more people would film because to have evidence for something or to try and... yeah have a witness statement where they're not going to forget something but yeah I guess like some of it is just pure and simple entertainment for that person filming even though most people yeah. wouldn't find it entertaining um some of the time it is they or especially if you're part of the group that, that have attacked somebody or is part of the fight yeah I think you're right and I think the very idea back in the early noughties that someone would film something like a violent attack that idea was literally abhorrent to the majority of the public and I think there was a feeling that because we could now film and share everything it would almost encourage this sort of antisocial behaviour and I don't know maybe it has maybe it has encouraged it. One thing I do know is that you kind of referenced this a moment ago um, Kim Yong Nam would probably still be alive if it wasn't for YouTube and happy slapping because there were massive elements of of that in his his murder. Um, I'm sure they'd no, have got to him another his, way. They'd have got to him a different way, and we just wouldn't have. They would seen it as much. I do think though the idea that it it almost encourages antisocial behaviour because we can kind of film and share everything. It is really interesting because. Half the time, yes, you've got this audience now where you want to put something out on on social media or on YouTube, someone's going to come and watch it and you might have like-minded people who cheer you on. But then also you're you're kind of giving the evidence straight to the police. Like those people, you yeah. know, the teens in, um, it was Wickoff Farm that I covered for a patron episode where they broke into the farm. They're uploading stuff to Snapchat. Everybody in the town was like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. Yeah. straight away so it's kind of a double-edged sword really isn't it it is I think I think you're right I'd not kind of thought of it from that angle but you're absolutely right we see a lot of people brought to book because uh at their own hands really because they filmed an attack um and and that's what what has kind of really proven that they were involved in it so so I think you're right um these so-called happy slapping attacks were usually minor acts of violence, such as hitting or slapping the victim across the face, as Bethan said earlier on. Of course, not pleasant by any stretch of the imagination, but not too serious either. However, there were a number of high-profile happy slapping incidents in the noughties which gained media attention. So I've taken a deep dive into the archives to give you a little flavour before we get on to today's case of what was going on back in the noughties. In May 2005, a 16-year-old student was beaten up and left unconscious in a vicious happy slapping attack in Manchester and footage of that attack was circulated on students' phones and it spread like wildfire throughout the whole country really quickly. In December 2005, singer Mylene Class was happy slapped in Bermondsey in South London. 
And this is amazing. On Valentine's Day in 2007, eight youths set upon a 31-year-old man named Curtis Mulcair in Brighton. And Curtis uh, actually turned out to be an amateur boxer. So you can kind of see where this one is going. Yeah, What a bunch of idiots. I I love that. Honestly, two of the uh, two of the assailants were hospitalised at the hands of Curtis. <laughs> Wonderful. And absolutely, and four of them were arrested for causing a fray. Uh, so yeah, absolute sweet irony there. Oh, fair play, Curtis. I mean, not that there can be many light-hearted elements to a, an episode, but I think maybe this is going to be my when I get sad about stuff. I'm going to remember Curtis. Like, yeah. can you imagine being him, being like, oh, for God's sake. Right, let me get my fists out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for him to pretty much be able to take out eight youths oh, is pretty damn impressive, even as an amateur boxer. So, Well, yeah, because that's still a lot. That's like a lot of things yeah. going on at once. It's not just taking on one person. No, absolutely Oh, fair not. play to him. So in the final example, it's, um, it's, it's quite a different story. So in July 2007, Anthony Anderson, who was 27 and living in Hartlepool at the time, urinated on a dying woman while a friend made a video of the incident. And he is reported to have yelled, this is YouTube material. What the hell is wrong with him? That is horrendous. Isn't that awful? And I suppose, again, we have to ask ourselves, would Anthony Anderson have done that if there was no easy way to film it and share it with his friends? I would say probably not, because it's like showing off, isn't it? That's such a weird thing to do and to show off about. But yeah, you telling your friends you've done that when you get down the pub is going to be very different to laughing at a video about it with your friends because also you we've all got those friends that kind of uh, regale us with these tall stories and you don't necessarily believe it all but if you've got the proof if if your friends videoed it and you're showing your friends that then they know it's definitely happened so it further um reinforces your behavior you're not just kind of making it up yeah oh that is horrendous i would quickly like to just say i love mylene class i don't know what it is about her I think it's because she's so beautiful and she plays piano, but I just love her. So I'm annoyed that someone slapped her across the face. I know. And how humiliating would that be to just be out and about in London and forget about the fact that she's been assaulted and and hurt. That would just be really humiliating for other people to have seen that. So, yeah, I did feel for her when I read that. But she's she's gone on to achieve amazing things. So I don't think it really uh, hindered her in any way. Uh, But I'm sure she still remembers it. Well, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I find it just just baffling this whole I mean I'm not really one for a for a fad and a a craze anyway I don't know about you but I've got lots of friends who are on TikTok and I just don't get it I don't understand we're too old we're too old (laughs) for it they're the same age as me and they do it and they enjoy it and it's good for their like a lot of my small business owner friends do use it for their small businesses and it's great I just don't get it though. I don't. Like, no. Do you remember planking? No. Oh, I remember planking. I thought you were going to say that was some kind of social media platform. I was like, no. But yes, I remember that craze. Like people yeah. just go and lie on stuff. Why? <laughs> Um, so I think we can all agree the term happy slapping is probably quite misleading because there's nothing happy or funny about attacking someone and filming it. Oh my God, that was something else I was going to say to you, to be fair, is like, it. I don't get why it's called happy slapping. No, no. 
no, I never really understood that. And it definitely still continues to this day. We might not have a name for it or we might not call it happy slapping anymore, but um, it does continue and perhaps even more unabated than before, thanks to new social media platforms like TikTok. Um, but as I said, yeah, it's, it's still there. We just don't call it happy slapping anymore. So today's case features an incident of happy slapping, so-called happy slapping, that ends in tragedy. We don't often issue a warning at the start of an episode, but I do think it's necessary today because there are some really graphic descriptions of violence coming up. But before we dive into that, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. Can you imagine being tormented by bullies and being so scared of what they might do to you that you jump 50 feet from a second floor window in order to escape them? So scared that you know crashing onto the hard concrete below is preferable to what awaits you inside. I can't. I cannot imagine that sense of panic. Can you? It just, that is, like, maybe from a raging fire, even then sometimes I think I would, I just, I don't know, like when you see people jumping from a burning building, but for people to put that fear into you like that, that is somehow worse isn't it that is awful. I think it is yeah I think it's worse and that's precisely what happened to 19 year old Rosemary Boxall in 2008 when she leapt to her death from a kitchen window following a vicious attack at the hands of two girls that she thought were friends oh my goodness 19 years old yeah Rosemary or Rosie as she was known to her friends and family was what you might call a troubled girl Born in the slums of Brazil to an alcoholic mother, her life didn't get off to a good start. Starved of love and affection, Rosie was forced to fend for herself as her mother descended into an abyss of alcoholism. Her early childhood was defined by neglect and contempt, and it looked as though things were only going to get worse for Rosie when, at the age of two and a half, her mother dumped her at a children's home, finally admitting that she was no longer able to cope. Within months, however, Rosie's prospects took a dramatic turn for the better when a British couple adopted her and took her in as one of their own. Simon and Rachel Boxall had been living in Brazil for a decade and were working as missionaries when they adopted Rosie just days before her third birthday. The couple already had four sons, all older than Rosie, but the girl was welcomed into the family with open arms. Simon and Rachel had worked mostly for the South American Missionary Society, helping to spread God's word in South America. And I just have to go on a bit of a rant here and say, um, I knew very little about the work of missionaries until I took a deep dive into this case. But I thought that they kind of built huts and schools and really had an impact on the communities that they worked with. And maybe they do, but the South American Missionary Society seems to be all about recruiting people into Christianity, which is fine. I suppose that does provide support and guidance to some people, but it doesn't really appear to me that they ever get their hands dirty. They're working in slums where people can't just pray away the fact that they have no running water. And I thought maybe they should have provided some more practical support. I I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? It is really difficult because some missionaries are honestly so incredible and they do exactly like you said. And I've got friends who have gone and volunteered for six months at a time in missionaries. And I think like any charity or any charitable organization 
you need to do your research because some of them will have big bosses where they pay them really high salaries and like this, you know, they'll just go and try and recruit people and try and just do surface things. Whereas others genuinely will go and build and help. So yeah, that's a shame that this this um, missionary seems to be that way mm. for you because some of them do an amazing, amazing work and I, I would hope that the majority do. But it's I guess it's a bit like if you get bad service in a restaurant, you're going to tell people more than if you get good. So maybe mm. it's something like that. I, I thought that might be the case because I, th- I, th- I thought I'm sure they do they do a lot of practical things, a lot of them. And I might be wrong with with this particular society, but I've looked on their website and I looked in detail at their values and their mission. And it's all quite woolly and it's all very much about spreading Christianity to to these parts of the world. So, you know, fair enough. And they've certainly probably, I'm sure, done more than I've ever done uh, in terms of doing good. But but yeah, it was just interesting for me to to see exactly what they're all about. So anyway, Simon and Rachel Boxall were on a mission, as I said, to spread the good word of Jesus Christ, our saviour, when they took Rosie into their family, which I think was in the early 90s. The couple and their now five children would go on to spend a further 15 years in Brazil, eventually leaving the South American Missionary Society to take up jobs in Rio. Simon as a vicar and Rachel as a primary school teacher at the British school. And then in 2005, the family headed back to the UK. And I think at this point, Rachel and Simon had been in Brazil since like 1983. And they'd obviously raised their family there. So it would have been a big culture shock for all of them, I guess, to move back to the UK at that time. By now, the four boys were all pretty much grown up and Rosie was around 15 or 16. So the family settled into London life and Simon became a vicar at Open Gateway Community Church in Thamesmead, South East London, where the family lived. While her brothers settled into their new lives and jobs, Rosie really struggled to adapt. Portuguese remained her first language and she struggled with English. Nevertheless, she began studying for two MVQs at Plumstead Manor School, but by March 2007, she had been asked to leave because she wasn't doing any work. And of course, we don't know the ins and outs of this, but I really feel for her at this point in her life. She's been in the UK for two years. Um, She really struggles with English and she's been kicked out of college or school. And I just thought, I bet she was just still really struggling with the language and wasn't being given the support maybe that she should have been and was just frustrated that's how it feels to me to be honest like yeah she's she needs a lot more support than anybody else because she's trying to do this in a second language and adapt to a different culture yeah yeah that's crazy it's sad isn't it and also at that age anyway like 15 16 year olds struggle because they've got so much going on so Yeah, oh, she's just, oh, I feel sorry for her. And I think um, when she was kicked out of school, it kind of acted as a bit of a catalyst because after leaving school, Rosie's behaviour was said to have deteriorated with Simon, her adoptive father, later commenting that she objected to helping around the house and just wanted to do her own thing, which is, of course, that's kind of normal, typical teenage behaviour. But I think there was a bit more to it. I think it was a, a bit worse than what you would ordinarily get with a girl of that age. 
Rosie had, as I said, really struggled to adapt to life in London. And I think she had always struggled to allow herself to be dependent on her family. So there was always this distance, no matter how hard Simon and Rachel and her brothers tried. I think there was always this sort of emotional barrier in place, preventing Rosie from getting too close to somebody. That makes me so sad because she was still very, very young when she was adopted. So you'd want to hope that those memories hadn't remained, you know, a three-year-old, but actually they must have done. Yeah, I'll come on to it in a bit of detail in a moment, but it was a very traumatic early childhood for her uh, between uh, birth and the age of three, pretty much three when she was adopted. Mm -hmm. So that has definitely, that definitely had an impact in her, uh, on her in later life. It just makes me so sad. I just think, you still think of a three-year-old as so small and and innocent and you don't realize how much it will affect them the time no. those tiny bits of those early years God, but I, I think poor girl. The, i think the damage had been done already yeah so as i said rosie was kicked out of school in march 2007 and in august of that year she dropped a bombshell on her family the day after her brother's wedding where she'd been bridesmaid rosie announced that she was leaving home and had found somewhere to live with friends And it's almost like she just wouldn't allow herself to be loved by that family. And maybe that independence that she'd learnt as a young child, so fending for herself, changing her own nappy as her mother lay comatose in an alcohol-induced stupor, had kind of left this sort of harsh legacy. She didn't think she deserved love, and she wouldn't allow herself to depend on anyone but herself for fear of them letting her down like her mother had done all those years ago. So I think that just gives a bit of context, doesn't it? The seeds were already sown for uh, for a troubled life. So now aged 18 and having left home, Rosie began leading what can only be described as a nomadic lifestyle, only occasionally keeping in touch with her adoptive parents, and that was usually by email or phone. And as we've said, don't forget they adopted Rosie at the age of two, she was nearly three, but they were the only parents that she would have consciously known. And despite them being loving and this being a privileged, warm family, she was able to cut them off really easily. And that's absolutely no shade on Rosie, that's just the result of the trauma that she suffered as a toddler. One of the few friends Rosie had made since coming to the UK was a girl named Oluwa Femi Ajose. Ajose was slightly younger than Rosie, but the two were kindred spirits, both on their own in the big city. Despite her age, she was just 17, Ajose had been granted temporary accommodation by Greenwich Council, a bedsit in a hostel in Blackheath in South London. It's not clear from press reports, but Rosie was either living there with a Jose or was at least a regular visitor around this time. What we do know is that a 13-year-old runaway called Hatice Khan was definitely living with a Jose in her bedsit at this time. It's not clear how she and a Jose had met, but they had, and the pair were firm friends. Khan, Hatice Khan, was a truly wicked girl, and although only 13 years of age, she was able to manipulate a Jose who was four years her senior. After leaving home and living or not living with a Jose, as I said, we don't know exactly, Rose's life had descended into chaos. She'd started a course in childcare, but she failed to show up and she was drinking heavily too. She was growing more and more distant from her family and she was becoming withdrawn. 
Rosie was vulnerable and when a Jose and Can were drunk one evening and looking to pick a fight, they knew she would be easy prey. So I'm going to take you to the 17th of May in 2008 now. It's nine months after Rosie has left home. It's a Saturday. Rosie and 13-year-old Hatties Can are arguing with each other in a Jose's bedsit in Blackheath. The argument centres around a man. The previous day had seen the girls invite a number of men back to the bedsit, one of whom both Rosie and Can had taken a shine to. But it was Rosie who the man was interested in, not Can. Well, yeah, because she's a 13-year-old child. Exactly, no shit. A full 24 hours later and Can still can't let it go. As far as she's concerned, Rosie has stolen her man. The arguing escalates and Can, who has been drinking vodka all day, shouts at a passive Rosie who just sits there staring into space, taking all of the abuse thrown at her without doing anything, so she doesn't fight back at all. Raphaelina Asley, who lives beneath the flat, hears the commotion and heads upstairs. She speaks with Rosie and offers to take her home, but she refuses, replying tearfully, I'm fine, they're my friends. That was kind of her, and also that was her kind of one opportunity to get away from this situation. And when when I said that Raphaelina offers to take Rosie home, I'm not sure if she means back to her parents, or or maybe Rosie did have her own bedsit or flat somewhere else, I don't know. Or even maybe just to Raphaelina's house, like, yeah. do you want to come to mine and stay there? Or something? Yeah. And get away That's from so them. That's so nice that she's tried. I and know. And that she tries to intervene. And and we'll hear again from Raphaelina in a moment. Annoyed at the sympathy elicited from the neighbour towards Rosie, Can, who has now been joined by a Jose, ramps up her campaign of abuse and starts hitting a defenceless Rosie, all the while screaming in her face. At this point there's a loud knock at the door. It's another concerned neighbour. The man asks what the hell is going on and a Jose and Can exit the flat and partially close the door behind them as they tell him to fuck off. The man refuses and attempts to push past them, reaching for the door handle. But before he can grasp it, Can barks, don't go in there, she's a fucking whore, you're not allowed in there. The terrified neighbour goes back to his flat and continues to listen out. If the commotion escalates, he will call the police, he tells himself. Back inside a Jose's bedsit, the girls text a group of boys and invite them over to watch their attack on Rosie. A few minutes pass and three boys arrive. One starts to film the ensuing attack on his phone. The two girls take it in turns now to punch and slap Rosie, screaming abuse at her at the top of their lungs. At one point, one of the girls grabs Rosie's hair from behind and violently jerks her head backwards. The skin on Rosie's face and neck is pulled taut, painfully stretched, and now the other girl slaps her hard across the face. A Jose is out of control now, drunk on power and hysterically slapping Rosie as Can watches on laughing. Exhausted, she pauses for a moment. The three girls are sat on the bed and the boys are in the corner of the room, just standing there, watching. At this point, a Jose grabs a can of air freshener that is sat on the table. She sprays it at close range into Rosie's eyes, and taking advantage of her stunned, partially blind state, she now punches her around the head with both arms, before moving to her chest as Can shouts, Lower, lower. 
Can grabs at Rosie and rips her t-shirt, attempting to hold her still as a Jose continues her vicious assault. Rosie is crying now, but it's not a hysterical cry, it's a defeated sob that is full of self-pity and despair. She is beaten black and blue, her head feels numb, it's tingling, and her face and eyes are stinging. As she struggles to comprehend the vicious nature of this attack, she starts to zone out, perhaps pass out, but she's soon snapped back into the moment when a Jose calmly says into her ear, I'm going to pour bleach down your throat now. At this point, one of the boys, the son of Raffaellina Asley, the neighbour who lives in the flat below, goes to get his mum, fearing that the attack is now getting out of control. Back in the flat, Rosie makes for the front door, but she's blocked from leaving. She is backed into a corner in the kitchen now, and she climbs onto the countertop near to an open window. She's three stories up. Rosie looks out towards Freedom, and then back at a Jose and Can, and asks them if they want her to jump. The two girls tell her that they do, yes. All three of them stare at each other for a moment, and then in an instant, Rosie's gone. Raphaelina arrives at the flat and hammers on the door. Can answers. When Raphaelina inquires after Rosie, Can says, fucking hell, she's escaped. She's gone out of the window, she's fucking jumped. Honestly, this is just absolutely horrific. And I, how can that boy decide now is the time that things have got out of hand? Like, what the fuck? Like, now you think it's out of hand? And like, oh my God, that poor girl, she's literally backed into a corner, like actually backed into a corner and the only other escape route is out of a window. Oh my God, my heart absolutely breaks for her. I just cannot believe this. And that's kind of why I felt I needed to issue a warning at the beginning, because I wanted to talk about the violence um, that was kind of uh, perpetuated by these two girls. Um, to really just kind of say this is how bad it can be and we call it happy slapping or we did back then but you know this isn't happy slapping this is this is something else this is just pure and simple murder like this is just horrendous so Raphaelina, can and a jose run out of the flat at this point and into the driveway where they find a dying rosie she's landed awkwardly A pool of blood surrounds her, it pours out of her, thick and dark as its scent permeates the evening air. As if intoxicated by it, Can now screams at Rosie, calling her a fucking whore and a bitch, and telling her that she has got what she deserves. Jesus Christ, this kid is messed up. She's a fucking bitch. This girl is dying and you're now still screaming at her? Like, what the hell? And and that screaming and abuse continues for like five or ten minutes. An ambulance arrives quickly, followed by the police, and Can and a Jose are arrested at the scene, thank God. The paramedics now work on Rosie for an hour at the scene. Stabilised enough to be transported to a nearby hospital, she is loaded into the ambulance. But it's no good. En route to the hospital, Rosie goes into cardiac arrest, and whilst the paramedics try desperately to save her, she slips away her short life having come to an abrupt end. Isn't it just so sad? Oh, I just, I can't cope. It's just horrible. And it's not even like her family were anywhere near that they could be with her at the end or anything. She's just there surrounded by strangers. And they're, you know, they're doing the best they can and they're incredible people, but it's, 
It's not the same. And can you imagine what what Rosie went through was appalling and jumped out that window and, and she would have landed on that concrete. She landed really awkwardly. She would have been in immense pain and zoning in and out of consciousness. I'm guessing, I don't know. Um, but it, it's very possible that she would have heard what Can was screaming at her as she lay dying. And I think that's, that's one of the worst bits of this, that mm. as if it wasn't an undignified end to her life as it was, you know, Can really steps it up a gear and um, Rosie kind of leaves this world with, with those words ringing in her ears. The next day, a post-mortem was carried out, revealing Rosie had died from internal injuries. Can and Jose were questioned at a South London police station, and they were initially charged with Rosie's murder. A Scotland Yard spokesman said, This is a suspicious death at this time. There are question marks over the circumstances. He went on to say, Police were called to reports of a female injured after apparently falling from a third-floor window. The female was found beneath an open window at that location, having suffered serious injuries. She was taken by London Ambulance Service to Queen Elizabeth Hospital, but was pronounced dead at 7.21pm. And then he finishes by saying two females aged 13 and 17 were arrested in connection with this inquiry and are currently in custody. So those initial murder charges were later reduced to manslaughter charges, and I think I think the CPS just kind of failed to evidence that Rosie was pushed and they could only really proceed with a murder charge if they could prove that she'd been pushed and um, they couldn't prove it. And I don't think she oh, was. that actually. frustrates me because while she wasn't pushed at that moment. She was mentally all of pushed. That lead up. Yeah. And also she'd said to them, do you want me to go and jump? And they said, yes. Like, yeah. They goaded her. They absolutely goaded her. Do you know what? I get it, though. I get that they didn't actually... Like, at that moment, if they'd have said, no, get down, she wouldn't have died. Well, she may still have died because she may have died from her injuries, but she wouldn't have died from the jump. So I kind of get it, but that annoys me that I get it. I'm kind of annoyed at myself. I want to be more like, no, it's murder. I know. From from a technical perspective, yeah, I get it too, but it Mm. it doesn't make it any less frustrating. Um, So I I found this quite interesting, but Can and Jose were released on bail um, pending a trial the following year, which, considering how dangerous these two girls are, I I found that fascinating, but I suppose there would have been quite stringent conditions attached to that bail, so curfews and and tags. At 17 and 13, you're not going to be able to just drive out of the country or you won't have money behind you. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're not a flight risk, really, because you're you're teenagers, so... Yeah, I suppose... And they probably would have been put into some sort of care uh, system of some sort to be... Like you then said, with curfews and stuff to kind of be kept under like lock and key in a different way. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think it was probably prison, but in a with a different name essentially. When the case came to court, the two teenagers who let's not forget were 17 and 13 at the time of Rosie's death blamed each other for telling Rosie to jump when she climbed up to the window after she was attacked. The old Bailey heard how they each claimed the other had said yes when Rosie had asked, do you want me to jump? Can admitted she had punched and slapped Rosie but said they had apologised to each other before Rosie then jumped to her death. And she also denied swearing at Rosie as she lay dying in that driveway. Yeah, 
yeah, you can deny that, but all of the people around exactly. you saw you doing it. Yeah. So there, there were there were so many Ugh. witnesses, not just um, Rafaelina, who was the neighbour in the flat beneath. Um, she w- was there to witness it, but other neighbours could hear it because Can was sort of shouting at Rosie as she lay dying. She wasn't just talking and and saying those things she was screaming them at her so there was a real commotion and and a number of witnesses gave evidence actually so that was that was proven to be a lie um absolutely um so can also said that when a jose had threatened to pour bleach into rosie's mouth it had been her who had stopped um a jose from doing that so she was really trying to paint herself as um as a hero in this situation and um just lying it was lie after lie and the judge called her out on it all the time and um there was a really interesting exchange that I did initially put into the script but I didn't really think it would work um but basically it really highlight it was an exchange I think between uh it was between uh can and the prosecuting qc and it really highlighted can's immaturity and her complete lack of awareness of how serious this situation now was um and and the prosecutor is kind of challenging her and saying like this is lie after lie after lie and she's like well that's what you're saying i'm saying it's the truth and he's like well that's up to the jury to decide and can responds in a really sort of um i can't think of the right word but she responds by saying yeah they will like a really sort of petulant petulant. yeah yeah that was the word i was looking for in a really petulant way so she's i want to have a look for this like just this dialogue she's such now a because, little shit yeah i did have oh it in but god, i i took it out but it was most just people like would be scared in a oh my god it's so intimidating intimidated yeah so intimidating <gasps> um and this this is the sort of kid where you know when we talked in the past gary Newlove, for example i know yeah. definitely talked in his case this is why i hate nasty teenagers because they haven't got the adult awareness of how horrible they are <laughs> And yet they've got the body of like a, of an adult almost strength, already. Yeah. They are strong. They're, they, they've got the language to use. They've got all of that, but they've still got that childlike attitude as well. And if they want to be nasty little shits, they will. And it's horrible. It really scares me. And I don't like teenagers that are not all of them, obviously, but that's, I, yeah, this is a key example of the sort of horrible youths I don't like. <laughs> just make me sound old but i just hate them you you know what i'm gonna say this reminds me of don't you that film go for it mark yep eden lake obviously yeah um i talk about it all the time if you've not seen eden lake and you want to have someone called you out actually oh yeah completely off topic somebody called you out because i think you said that they were on their honeymoon but i thought they were on their honeymoon okay I can't remember what they actually are doing. That film scares your description of that film scares me too much to watch it. I know. I'm not So I'm not going I'm to. not gonna go into detail. I won't <laughs> I won't tell you about the film. If you've not listened to the previous episodes where we talk about it, then um I won't bore you with it now. But ha- look it up online and just kind of see what it's about, because this reminds me of it. And um the violence in that film is is brutal. So um back to the trial. A friend of both Rosie uh, and a Jose, Donna Honeyman, was called to give evidence in the trial and she said that the pair were the best of friends. She said every time they were together they were so happy. She said they'd been friends for two years and she'd never seen them fight before adding, 
Rosie didn't like fights or arguments. She would try and stay clear of them. She would walk away or try to stop the argument from forming. So I thought that... And that's what you saw, wasn't it? Because she just, you said she sat there in just silence and like stared into space. Yeah, she she was really passive. And when I said that she was vulnerable earlier on, she really was vulnerable. Um, I think she was going through a real crisis at this point. She was drinking. Her life was really chaotic and it was, it was going to end at some point. I, f- I feel had she not been able to get out of those circumstances, not just with what happened, but, um, as I say, when she was kicked out of school in 2007, it really acted as a catalyst for quite a destructive life, which is really sad. I just don't think she had the support around her and that's nothing against her family. They, they did everything they could I think there just wasn't the specialist support perhaps Um, an example of that is the fact that Jose her friend was given council accommodation at the age of 17 which Greenwich Council have now since said they they wouldn't do that now they wouldn't give uh, a minor accommodation of their own um so I, you know, I don't think that was the right thing to do, and and that meant that a Jose took in this thirteen-year-old girl, can, and um, and also it meant that Rosie had somewhere that she could stay or be, and it was just not a healthy dynamic for them. Um, so I think I personally think the problem was always can. So she's the thirteen-year-old runaway that a Jose had taken in. She was manipulative and evil, and of course a Jose was too. We saw that in the attack. But I really think that a Jose was coerced by Can in this attack. I think, I think Can was manipulative and drove that attack. Uh, I'm not sure if that exactly came out in the trial, but from what I've read, it seems that way to me. Roger Smart, who was prosecuting, said Rosie fell to her death in fear of further violence. And in summing up, he told the jury, Rosie leapt to her death from the kitchen window of a Jose's flat to escape from a prolonged period of physical and verbal abuse. Even as she lay dying, soaked in blood on the floor outside, Can ran outside to her and continued to jeer and swear at her, shouting, Serves you right, bitch. And I know I'd already kind of mentioned that and I, I've just put it, I've now kind of repeated it, but in, in um, his words, I just wanted to really hammer that point home um, of, of Can's behaviour in particular. On the 18th of November in 2009, a Jose who was 19 at that time and Can who was now 15 were both found guilty of the manslaughter of Rosie Boxall. The judge lifted an order banning the identification of Can due to her age, saying that it was in the public interest for her identity to be revealed and that her callous behaviour and the ensuing consequences uh, would then act as a deterrent to others, which I really think they, I think they would have. I think that's the right thing, I yeah, do. definitely. She did not deserve to have anon- anonymity. Can had received the guilty verdict in silence, but minutes later, she burst into tears, which prompted at least four women on the eight-woman, four-man jury to also start weeping. And at this point, the judge told them these things are always distressing, um, which I thought it was kind of good that although they're weeping at, at this monster, uh, at her tears, it's kind of good that the judge 
um, sort of understands that, you know, it's not that you're sympathising with her or empathising with Can. It's just been a really fucking distressing trial. We're now at the end of it. And that's how it came out. So so they really, those four women weren't crying because this 15-year-old girl was going to go to prison. Um, they were crying, I think, because all of the, the relief at the end of the trial. And I thought that was quite interesting that Can, who I felt really was a driving force throughout this, um, it's really interesting that she receives that verdict, that guilty verdict in silence. Um, and then maybe it just kind of lands a couple of minutes later. Um, but yeah, she burst into tears. She had to be consoled by her mother. And I'm not going to go into the background of a Jose or Can much because I don't know their backgrounds. But I do know that Can had run away from home because her mum was in a domestic violence situation. So it was, of course, a really broken home that, that she'd run away from. Um, so there is some sort of mitigation there. But it, of course, it doesn't excuse what she did. But I think maybe the real Hattie's Can came through when that verdict had been read out and and she cried and had to be consoled by her mum. I can kind of see why those four jurors cried as well, because I think... It's just this real human instinct that you want your mum to comfort you, um, whoever you are, whatever you've done. And um, I, I can see that would have got to them. I just think maybe I'm a cold-hearted bitch, but too little, too well, late. Well, tell us something we she don't know. She is a horrible, horrible person. And I don't think I would have been the, one of those jurors that was crying for her. I think I'd have been somebody who would have literally looked at her and gone, don't now try and get some sympathy. And I, I know on balance she's not. She's actually just reacting in a very basic. And also she is still a child yeah. and she is just reacting and wants her mum to console her. But you, yeah, there's plenty of opportunities for her to have paused or stopped or or even at the time when this girl is dying on the floor to then not scream in her face. Yeah, good point. There's plen there was yeah. plenty of opportunity for her. I know she's been drinking all day, but I don't care. That's just, yeah... Yeah, um, I, I, I do see it from that side because I did wonder, is Can crying now for herself rather than what she's done? You know, I think those tears most probably were um, self-pity, I guess. Um, interestingly, a Jose was poker-faced as she was led away um, following that guilty verdict. So, um, so yeah, we'll come on to her in a moment and, and explain a bit more. Um, it did subsequently come to light that the girls had previously beaten Rosie up during at least two incidents uh, the day before she died. Um, and again, Rosie had done nothing to defend herself. So there'd been a fight on the Friday uh, before Rosie had died. A Jose was ordered to be detained indefinitely in a mental hospital. Um, that's kind of according to press reports. I, I don't know if there's a better term for that now. Um, but, but she was, uh, yeah, detained in a secure mental hospital. And then Hatice Khan, who, as I said, was 15 at the time of sentencing, was sent to detention for eight years. And Judge Peter Thornton told them, this was cruel, abject bullying. It was ugly, vicious and repeated. As was once said, bullies are always cowards at heart and may be credited with a pretty short instinct in scenting their prey. Rosie was a quiet one, which no doubt is why you picked on her. And he said that Can had been the leader, as I kind of said, actually, so that did come out in the trial, and a Jose had joined in. He told Can that if she'd been older, her eight-year sentence would have been a lot longer. 
And this is another really interesting um, fact, actually. So uh, despite me saying that it was Can that coerced a Jose and that she wasn't that evil when compared to her much younger friend, the judge actually called a Jose out on her behaviour while she awaited sentencing in Holloway Prison. So um, they were on bail pending the trial and throughout the trial, um, they were then found guilty and, I don't know, maybe a week later they were sentenced. So in that short period of time between the verdict and the sentence, a Jose was held on remand in Holloway Prison and apparently she had tried to get several inmates to hang themselves, even telling them how they could do it um, by using their bed sheets. What? I mean, that is just psychotic. Oh my God. Isn't that just... She's just like this demon of death. She's like a dementor. Um, so... And then that kind of now makes a bit more sense as to why she was just sat there all stainy Yeah, I, I think she had major she actually severe pure evil. mental illness. I, I wouldn't want to begin diagnosing her. I'm not qualified to do that, even in an amateur kind of way that we sometimes do. But I think there was a lot going on there. And I think it says a lot, doesn't it, that she was um, put into a, a secure mental hospital and, and not given a release date either. Um, unlike Can, who, you know, let's be honest, Hattie's Can is yeah. now out, out, isn't she? Um, living her, yeah, exactly. her best life, probably. Probably not, to be fair. Probably not, no. I can't imagine that. I, I hope actually for her that, because I can see your next bit of your script. So actually, if Rosie's family are like this, then I kind of hope that, that Can could have gone on and done something better with her life. That would be really good. Yeah. I feel like she probably didn't manage who, who to. Who knows? It, it, may, it may have rehabilitated her. Um, it may have made her worse. But I think the fact that her mum showed up for court and supported her daughter despite what she'd done says a lot. I think that's that's a good thing. Uh, a lot of mums in, in the, that sort of dynamic wouldn't have done that. Um, in those kind of, uh, with those backgrounds. Um, so, um, I just wanted to finish actually on, um, a statement that Rose's parents, Simon and Rachel Boxall, released, um, following the conviction of a Jose and Can. Uh, so they said that they forgave both of them and quote, Rosie was a loving, caring person who brought frequently remembered times of fun and laughter to the family. We continue to pray for those who are responsible for Rosie's death. We want them to know that we forgive them. That does not mean that what they did doesn't matter. Of course it does. For justice to be seen to be done, it had to happen and those responsible have to face up to the consequences of their choices. So I thought they um, they just summed it up so well because they're forgiving Can uh, and a Jose, but they're still saying that, you know, you have to pay for what you did and that's correct. And us forgiving you doesn't diminish the beautiful memories we have of our daughter. Um, so I, I thought they summed it up so beautifully and I think that's a great place to end it, actually. I think that's a really, a really positive way to end it. Don't think that there's going to be an option for that, but actually... How strong yeah. and amazing of her parents. Yeah. And um, I mean, just very briefly, that Simon and Rachel said that they, they really, really did everything they possibly could to um, ensure that Rosie had this settled upbringing. But it was just so difficult for them to achieve that because of the trauma that she'd endured 
um, from birth to sort of the age of three. So really, really sad tale, uh, just such a sad life for Rosie because she had um, her life had started appallingly and then she was given this real chance, but um, got in with the wrong people and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and it ended at the age of 19. So this is in memory of, of Rosie Boxall. So don't forget to check out our show sponsor, which is wearewild.com. Use code TRUE for 20% off. And if you want to support the show through Patreon, then head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Until next time, we will see you then. Bye. Bye.